Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Glenn Carner. He's a psychotherapist focused on addiction. He also does some work in other areas of therapy, but his main focus is on addiction, both for adults and adolescents. He's a licensed mental health counselor based in Hawaii. For those of you who happen to actually be seeking treatment and you are in Hawaii, I definitely recommend reaching out. The nice thing about Glenn is that he's not focused on an abstinence-only model for addiction, so he he tries to work with people where they're at and figure out the best way to reform their drug use and other aspects of their lives simply to decrease harm and increase the chance of them having a healthy, good life. And all too often, that's really not how addiction is treated. There's a lot of therapists who don't even want to deal with addiction because of the alleged complications that are associated with it and the harder form of therapy that allegedly exists. But Glenn is definitely focused on that area and he takes a different approach than the mainstream and in my opinion, it's a better approach. So among the things we talk about in this episode are how to deal with addiction, how the existence of addiction should impact policy, his thoughts on the brain disease model of addiction, and a variety of other things, primarily focused on areas like how people should approach treatment, whether abstinence is really needed in all cases, and even some of the special situations or ways of treating addiction when it appears in adolescents versus adults. You can find Find all of his information, including contact information, in the description. And as always, if you want to support TDC, you can do so through Patreon. I don't run ads or have any sponsors. Therefore, it really is your support that makes everything the Drug Classroom does possible, whether it's podcasts or videos or written content. So therefore, even if it's only two or five dollars per month, any amount you want to provide, it really does help. And if you want to contact me, you can do so at Seth at the Drug Classroom.com. And without further ado, here is Glenn Carner. I'm here with Glenn Carner. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Aloha, Seth. Thank you so much for having me. So we've done stuff for a while now with another podcast, so we know each other. But for those of you who don't know or aren't familiar with that work, can you just introduce yourself and how you got into therapy and dealing with addiction and other things? Sure. Well, never been too much down that path myself, I will say. So I'm not I'm not so much a bit I've I've been there and done that, but I haven't done it to necessarily the extent that others have. Um, let's see. Well, I originally wanted to be a marine biologist and then <laughs> that didn't work out. Um but anyway, so I uh I have a master's in addictions counseling from Fairleigh Dickinson University. Uh, been working in the field for about 20 years, um, typically have a perspective that, well, I got into kind of um, working with uh, methadone treatment shortly after I began traditional counseling, and so have been exposed to a variety of of different treatments, whether it's medication-assisted or abstinence-based or things like that. Um, I'm also uh, a member of Drug Policy uh, Drug Policy Alliance, as well as Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and I do um, as much advocacy work as I can around that. But mainly, my focus recently has been f- improving, or actually, the focus has been doing the type of treatment that I've always wanted to do. So I started my own practice here in Hawaii, and I'm doing a a sort of harm reduction based spectrum of 
I would say engagement, not even care, but just wherever a client is at, I want to be able to engage them and serve them and things like that. So yeah, so now doing some, I would say, cutting edge things, whether it be with um, uh, even uh, nutritional referrals or doing things with um, agonist therapy or antagonist therapy or all these things. And you would be shocked out there to know that like most people don't even know about this stuff, right? We were just talking about naltrexone for alcohol and things like that. But, you know, most people don't even know. So it's nice to be able to get the information out there. That seems to be one of the things that, I mean, I'm not super familiar with the field, but in terms of what separates the way that you seem to handle things compared to others is the willingness to adjust not only your model of treatment over time, but Mm -hmm. then the model for each person. Whereas I, I know, I mean, whether it's addiction or depression or anything else, there's this tendency in therapy to just stick to this one specific model, even if it's not working for the person, to the point where a patient just ends up leaving because it's not really their thing. And, you know, they complain about it not working Mm-hmm. for them. Have you noticed that that seems to be an issue in the field in general? Well, it's such a different setup here. I, I mean, first I would say we we don't use a model per se. If anything, we're just using biopsychosocial care. The model is going to be dictated by the patient's needs. Um, so why, why say another treatment center is like, okay, you know, we're going to run you through these groups and you'll learn these things. I mean, that may all be valuable, but certainly depending on the patient, the priority may be very different than what the model's presenting. So, so just to kind of compare. So here we're doing, you know, one on one or one with family or friends individual therapy. There is no discharge here. If you want to be discharged, great. If you want to remain engaged, great. But we see addiction is a long term issue on a continuum. Even if you're re- resolving it, um, we still want to remain engaged. So I would say the biggest difference between, or, or at least in treatment, I mean, the, the model of abstinence only and embracing that and then not being able to accommodate people who may not totally be in that space that's that's the biggest difference in terms of any model we we don't require um, abstinence to receive care at this facility and and what you usually see in drug treatment and this is this is what's crazy and you don't see this in other areas of mental health but you know, somebody will go into drug treatment and they're using drugs and then they maybe try to quit or they oscillate or they use a little bit here, or they relapse, whatever. If you don't get it together in, in, in a fairly brief amount of time, um, they're going to kick you out of there. Uh, they'll tell you how it's, you know, it's affecting other clients or whatever. And of course it may be. But uh, that doesn't happen in other areas of mental illness. So, so just the idea is that you can picture a spectrum of care, uh, you know, traditional therapy being all about abstinence and working towards that. And then sort of what we're doing, which is whatever, wherever you are at, we want to begin to engage you and, and make progress. And that progress may not even focus on the addiction initially. I mean, a lot of times the addiction is, is very impacting, but a lot of our clients are very functional and can make other changes to mitigate the harms, for example. Something like, uh, you know, and you do, doing like N-acetylcysteine if you're drinking heavy and having some liver protection and things like that. True, so, harm reduction. And yeah. we were talking recently about not necessarily foca- focusing on the drug, but say other things like hobbies or just filling in the life and expanding it beyond yeah. the drug. So more of a, a normal, like if somebody came without addiction 
you would focus on ways to improve the person's life, whereas traditional addiction treatment seems heavily focused on just getting that down to, you know, a 0% use rate as fast as possible, as long as possible, not the entirety of the individual's life. Right. And by not having the treatment individualized, which it is, isn't in most programs, we lose patients in regard to their engagement, right? So we, 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 in addiction treatment, we talk all about resistance and things like that. And the fact is, the, the, the truth of it is, Seth, and, and everybody out here, there is no treatment resistance. Uh, you may be resistant of a treatment if you're not feeling like it's either going to be helpful or not comfortable or for whatever the reason, right? It, it, you know, when, when people go in and to get an MRI, right, they may give them a little Valium to try to accommodate it because it's such an uncomfortable experience. Well, in drug treatment, it, you, you know, we'll run them in, a, you know, through, through the course of that. And then if they're not happy or whatever, you know, we'll typically talk about their addict behavior or their addict thinking or one of these other, you know, myths and terms and, um, and we'll blame them, but we never look at ourselves. So, so that's a, a, a big problem is, is sort of the user friendliness of the therapy. Um, if a person doesn't like therapy, the program should be listening to them and wondering how it can be more comfortable to sort of make the changes. And that, that's really the name of the game. People, you know, you can strong arm people and you can twist them real hard. I don't know if you get as much sustainable change in that as we would like, but um, but you can do this whole thing in a very user friendly way. And I would also say even the financial incentives for those bigger, you know, bigger type programs, you know, you got people coming in. Residential can be thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, as you know. There's a lot of incentive to do that. So, yeah, a very different experience here at, at, at my little uh, counseling program here. And it seems as though a, a potential contributing factor is if, I mean, the mainstream model of addiction right now is the disease model. I mean, I don't know how much that impacts mm -hmm. the job of a therapist, but it would seem if you're treating it as this clear-cut disease of the brain, then you would sort of have this standard treatment model. I mean, mm -hmm. if somebody has a normal sure. physical disease, you don't then say, how about we work on improving your relationship with your family? So right. there's, a there's you know, addiction really seems to be falling closer to not a disease, but rather a normal therapeutic situation, right. just improving somebody's life. Right. What are your thoughts on the disease model? Because right now it seems to dominate the yeah. entire field. Well, you know, there's there's actually one of the parts of the disease model, and I kind of I, I mentioned it in the beginning, and I and 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 I like it is is not the chronicity of addiction, but 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 the fact that you know we have oscillations in addiction. So for for example, some of my patients will if they lose their job, right? Or or perfect example, husband and wife, uh, you know, husband drinking really heavily. Uh, wife wants to take the kids and get out of the house. Well, I can assure you that if that takes place, and whether that's a reasonable consequence or not, um, you know, I'm not making a judgment, but but I can assure you that that addiction is going to increase in response to that environment, right? So we have these massive influences, and and there is such a variety of ways people resolve, like. Like I have clients who are like, they get really into sports. They have great oversight by their family. The family has monitoring on all their phones and locations and things like that. And that works for them. I have another patient who she just got her home group. She has her sponsor. She uh, has supportive family and she's, she's doing well too. Totally all in a 12 step. 
Um, who else? I got another patient who, you know, give me three sessions and let's get on naltrexone and, and, and deal with alcohol and that works for them. So, so the idea of even a model, I mean, e- even in the three cases I've just described, the, the, the experiences are so vastly different and, and the treatment approaches are so vastly different. Um, to sort of limit yourself and say, this is the disease. Um, I tell you though, boy, the naltrexone will make me, make me feel, start selling that, selling that line when it comes to alcohol. But so yeah, the, the whole, the whole concept of this one size fits all anything, even if that was the case, it seems like the resolution of that or, or, uh, you know, you know, or uh, reducing of harm of that is all handled so dramatically differently. I don't see any benefit, um, including even my, for my patients, like, Hey, you have a disease, disease. I mean, we don't even really use the word alcoholic here unless the patient wants to use it. If they want to label themselves up an alcoholic and identify with that, okay, well, we might even talk about the risks of identifying with that. But that topic seems to have become somewhat popular recently is the the terminology used surrounding addiction. Mm. And there's a lot of people who are now strongly opposed to drug addict or drug abuser or alcoholic. Great. And do you think that matters? Like, I don't, I haven't really adopted it into... I mean, I don't go around calling people addicts anyways, so it's not been a focus of mine. I think it's great. I think it's great to get away from those words. The shame, nobody shames my clients as much as they shame themselves. I, I, you know, they, they, they identify with, hey, I'm an, I'm an addict or I'm a junkie. They, they often, you know, their environment is often, it, 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 depending on their particular circumstance, but it, their, if their environment, if they've really sort of hit bot, you know, hit, hit some pretty low spots in their life. I don't even want to say hit bottom. That's another myth. Um, that they, um, you know, that they really kind of, um, they, they, they are very, it's very easy for them to embrace that, that mindset and, and that belief system. And it's not always helpful, uh, in terms of climbing out to continue to, uh, to think of yourself. Now, it's, it may be helpful to think of yourself in terms of an addict. If, if you need a continuous reminder and an identity that, you know, Hey, if I ever use again, I go off the deep end and this is what happens. Oh, you know, fabulous. If, if that's you, great. Uh, but if I'm going to start dealing with an adolescent or, or especially or somebody else who is not comfortable with that concept, um, I need to keep that as far away from them. Or maybe we even work through some process of change and they come to a place where they're like, you know, I really do want to identify with this. So that's all individual. Um, it's an individual concept. But but no, the, identifying a, as having a disease, I have never found any benefit at all in any of my clients ever, <laughs> you know, be like, I have a disease and this is, uh, okay, well, super. We're still doing the same freaking relapse prevention, coping, all the rest of it, you know, and we don't have to have a moral thrashing to like get at the base. I mean, a lot of my clients are even very high functioning, right? This isn't court referral treatment here. This is private, um, individualized outpatients. So um, there's a lot of people there that might not have the quote unquote moral failings that we sort of expect out of folks with addiction and it's not appropriate or or even their duration of use and it's not appropriate to sort of slap these labels on, especially something as 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 diminishing as addict or junkie. Ugh, gross. They're they're still people. Most of the and most of their life doesn't in, it might not even involve those things. So they're parents too and sons and daughters. So I, I don't rem- rem- forget that. The terminology and the 
even treating it as a disease seems to play into this idea of elevating the strength and power of drugs themselves. I mean, and this is a slightly different yeah, topic, but plays point. into it. There was somebody who was talking recently to me about how they were having sort of mood issues mm -hmm. and it was known that they had used drugs to a limited degree just cannabis and other things. And the immediate response from, um, I'm not sure about the family, but the response from the the available kind of therapist was this may be them being in withdrawal or this may be like a drug seeking thing or right. like the, the mere fact that drugs are present in the life has right. so quickly in the mind of the therapist or family become the most important thing. Right. Uh, and this is not even a case of addiction. This is not daily use. This is not right. even problematic use. But oh my point. goodness, this person used drugs and then this person had this emotional situation. Yeah. They must be intertwined and sort of elevating the drugs in this way seems to be this recurring theme of, of something that would stand in the way of treating it more as a normal psychological thing. In the same way that we don't call people with depression, we don't like label them a depressed or something, but in a more powerful thing, He's you'll label the them psychotic. <laughs> yeah, but you'll call, you know, somebody with schizophrenia yeah. a schizophrenic. And right. it's sort of in the same way that that is a example, an example of a, a more powerful mental disorder. The drug is believed to be so powerful that it can become, it can like overtake a person. And it just doesn't, when you actually talk to people that use drugs, it doesn't seem to overtake them in that way. There's still people, you know, they still have, you know, normal emotions. And Even as a treatment provider, it's very easy to fall into that thinking. So, for example, I have a patient that uses cocaine or was using cocaine, I should tell you, one time per week. Right now, you would say, "What? Yeah. What is this? One time per week? How can they be addicted?" Right now, if you talk to someone who understands addiction, including someone who's experienced it, they will understand that even at once a week, right, you can kind of get into this pattern where, oh, Wednesday's coming, you start to plan for Friday. Okay, Friday's ramping up, and your whole dopaminergic system sort of <laughs> accommodates even the once a week. Of addiction, but I the reason I bring that up is I find myself even making the same mistake, which is when he comes in, right? I'll I'll meet with him like once a week. I'll start going, you know, well, did you use cocaine, right? And I'm sort of checking on that, and I find myself when I'm saying that, even myself, who's very aware of all this stuff and all the all the bullshit that comes along with drug treatment. Even myself, I find myself getting stuck in, hey, did you use? Good job. Oh, did you, you know, that that kind of thinking. And again, I mean, think of what else is going on in his life that he's only, I mean, again, he's using one time per week, right? So yeah, there's a lot every, of, yeah, super highly every day functional could be guy. as a sort of a failure right. or success based exactly. on that one factor. So it's almost just like, a, it's, an, it's a very easy objective benchmark to kind Kind of fault, you know, drugs, yes or no. It, 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 yeah. Rather than again, and we've talked about this, how how critical what you really should be looking at is the relationship to the substance as opposed to the drug. When are there instances where you do end up encouraging somebody to really pursue abstinence, or is it always sort of just checking with them to see what is on their mind for what they would yeah. prefer? 
Well, well, the evidence speaks for itself. So, so we may try something like moderation.、Um, even if you're trying moderation, you might want to try a period of abstinence prior. It seems to allow a bit of a, a biochemical reset when you do that.、Um, but abstinence. So, I have clients that very much look. I want to quit this, and we're driving at quitting that. And others who are like, "Hey, I want to keep using." And and. The the greatest thing, you know, and we talk about honesty a lot in, in addiction treatment. Oh, they're being dishonest. Well, they're being dishonest because they need to lie.、Um, mm. But when you have good engagement and good rapport with your client, my clients don't need to lie to me. They're not facing like again. They may have major consequences at home or or, or even with the court or whatever. But. But the ability for a, a patient to simply be honest about what their experience is—I mean, imagine—I I start someone doing the Sinclair method, right? And they're doing the Sinclair method, and it's not working, right? It's not working, and and I kind of see treatment as like a stack, right? Or, or I guess you,、um, yeah, I think that's what folks call it with like nootropics and things like that. So,、yeah. so I'm stacking, right? So I'm stacking potentially,、uh, you know, nutritional supplementation to help with mood. Then I'm stacking naltrexone for you know better sensor di- diminished、uh, diminished reinforcement of the brain from the alcohol, right? So, so I kind of just keep stacking these things. What was my, what was my where was I going with that? Kind of lost my thought a bit. Can you talk about what the Sinclair method is? I think yeah, a lot of people yeah, probably yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. So, so, um, so get, kind of getting into that.、Uh, but again, with, with so with stacking, so I, I would just say that I'm looking at as many things as I can put w-、uh, to the point where a person is achieving their goals. Right,、yeah. and and if they're achieving those goals, fabulous. And if they're not, okay, well, you're they're not, and let's look at how we can handle that. But but again, the the idea of of you know they're inherently dishonest. That's that's kind of bullshit. Even if they want to, you know, use less and do harm reduction, you you put it this way, Seth. You never have to disengage unless you are not serving the patient or hurting them or whatever. You never have to disengage from the patient. Quite the contrary.、Um, the Sinclair method. I know I brought that up a number of times. It's because I am like amazed at the Sinclair method. It's it's as close to like. I guess、uh, like medication-assisted therapy, so something like, so for example, like Suboxone. You put someone on Suboxone, and all of a sudden they're like, "Wow, I feel satiated, and I'm not craving, and you know my life can go on, and all that." So that's that's a wonderful effect when you see that in in that type of therapy. So here is the biggest freaking craziest thing in addiction. So one of the things they this this gentleman,、uh, Doctor Sinclair. Um, found out was that if you give someone naltrexone or an opioid antagonist one hour prior to them drinking alcohol, something really strange happens. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. As as one of my patients put it,、uh, who's a musician, it takes the high notes off the alcohol. Now they still get drunk, and it still affects them and all that. But for about seventy-eight percent of the people who do that over time, whether it's the, the behavioral action of it,、uh, in, in terms of blocking the reinforcement or whatever,、um, you see people who have been major, major alcohol users start to diminish their their use of alcohol. They、um, so, for example, I have、uh, you know some folks who've been going on that recently, and they're talking about、um, wow, before I. I would have grabbed a drink before I texted you, but no, I kind of—I、uh, didn't feel like I needed to, or I didn't feel compelled to have another, or oh, I was drinking twenty-four beers. Now I'm at twelve. Now I'm at four. 
Um, when you see this simply from someone taking an antagonist now, and what makes that so exciting is, you know, we're not talking about, I guess, um, I mean, it's psychoactive. Is it, would that be, would an antagonist be considered psychoactive? Is that appropriate term there, Seth? Yeah, they can be psychoactive. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're certainly not getting high off it. I mean, you give someone naltrexone and, and sort of nothing happens. So, so to see someone who's drinking a, a like giant jug of vodka every two days and all of a sudden is like day one, you know, okay, sort of stabilized, didn't feel compulsion. And then, and then within weeks, you're seeing like, major i mean it sucks to retain patients I, I to be quite honest i mean they're in here and they, you know we set them up with a psychiatrist and we'll you know okay let's do some counseling and typically i i kind of have a tough time retaining them because they're like i'm fine now see you later uh you know i'm doing my med okay well you understand if you come off on that okay great and and they're kind of out the door so so anyone out there who has consistent alcohol use that's problematic and heavy, man, you know, that should almost be a first line treatment. I And I would think now again, of course, qualifying, I'm not a doctor, I'm not quite sure of all the side effects that naltrexone may result in. But it seems so easy. It's also very popular in Europe. And it's also popular in countries where, you know, people can't shell out $25,000 for 28 day inpatient. So, um, so I'm thrilled. Again, I love the easy treatment, man. Why Why does this have to be so hard? Why do I have to surrender to God, discuss my moral failings when I can take – and let me also say one more thing about that. So like I said, my patients aren't exactly the moral failing type. These are highly functional highly established these, these this is the this is like you know executive level people um dealing with this and having good lives or whatever and at some point for whatever reason whether historic or or not um you know a habit took place and it's very important that people understand that addiction is no more and no less than a habit it, that's all it is. It's not more. Uh, it's a, you know, and we even talk about sort of addiction and reinforcement and withdrawal, right? And I use the example like if you had a dog and your dog runs away, how do you feel? Well, you can't sleep, you can't eat, you feel sick. Well, that's a lot like withdrawal, isn't it? It's, you know, sort of the, the same kind of thing. So, so I think it might have been you who've even said this, but the idea of addiction really being love, it's kind of just, just this, atta- you know, you become attached to this. This yeah, in, in, yeah, I think it's important that you bring up the different patient populations because I think people elevate it beyond a habit due to always associating drug addiction with the worst situation oh, yeah. where somebody is always drug seeking, they lose their family, they lose their job, they don't have any money. Yeah. That's um, the minority, the vast but, minority. But obviously, those are just the people you're going to see because those right. are the people who are on the street or are otherwise what people identify as a negative part of the society. If somebody still has a job, then whatever is going on in their home with their psychological addiction does not necessarily become seen. So we have this skewed view of addiction in the same way of drug use itself, that as if everybody who uses heroin, even regularly, is the worst stereotype of a heroin user, but there's all these other people that aren't getting getting seen. So it skews that perception. You know, now that I think about it, I don't even think I have any patients that don't work. They all have jobs. And some of them are very heavy drug users. So you're uh, saying drugs don't prevent you from working? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm, I, I mean, the only drugs that I encounter that are particularly problematic, I mean, in regard to just the outwardly 
you know, uh, whether it be chemically destructive or, or based on the effects, right? You know, lack of sleep. So, so when I, you know, amphetamines, right? Someone on methamphetamine, you know, you can see some visible, certainly visible impairment. You know, you can get these, these sort of bouts of paranoia after they use can be very impacting, all that stuff. My opioid guys, they can all work. Uh, they, they all kind of do their thing unless things get super severe and of course alcohol, but yeah, I don't see too much cocaine. Like, wow, my life is, I, I mean, again, you can get people with poly substance issues and things like that, but, but a lot of like we've talked about as well, you know, a lot of the harms are secondary, but, uh, well, but the, va- the vast majority are all very functional. They're coming in here and they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to do things better. And if you nail down a person's life and just focus on, you know, what the drug is doing, which would be taking the average addiction situation versus, say, Switzerland, where you can just take the drug and provide it, in this case, heroin, and have it separated from all the other cultural and and lifestyle things that normally have to go with heroin use. And then suddenly the drug can remain in the person's life and is not having that impact. It's not as though the mere existence of this opioid agonist is telling the brain, you can't work and you have to steal from your family. There's these other lifestyle situations that play a role and it's not just the drug. And that's what people always seem to be concerned about is oh my goodness, we couldn't possibly say change drug policy in a way where more people have access to opioids because you would end up with the entire society being that kind of user. But it turns out it's all these other factors like the incredibly high price or the inability to have a consistent supply. So you're constantly searching for your drug. I mean, those things have a big impact. It's not just the chemical. Yeah. So alcohol, you know, we'll see alcohol become very problematic if you're if you're just sloshed out of your brain and, and, and all of that stuff and just completely wasted. Obviously, that can have major problems. But but yeah, I mean, we, we just don't see I mean, when you talk about someone getting high, I mean, you're talking about these little windows of of use, you know, and, and then like you're saying, you have these compared to <laughs> compared to the actual the the drug using experience, the the seeking and the planning and the coming down and the working around the accessibility. And, you know, a big part of addiction is not having it and and needing to get it and will I get it and then finally having the relief of getting it right so so a lot of addiction 75% is sort of the non high part <laughs> as you try to try to manage all of that um, and obviously you can picture somebody for whom even if it doesn't cost anything and it's always available they're still going to have a problem but for a portion of users if they had a a supply that it was always there that certainly was never any trouble getting it, it didn't cost them anything, then suddenly it was not, I have to use the drug now. I've been searching for it for a day. I mean, I have to use it at this moment, even if it's not a good idea versus I can get it whenever I need to, you know, maybe in six hours, maybe I could wait until the next day. You know, there's not that kind of time sensitive pressure, you know, cyclic nature of of drug use, non-use, and this kind of lifestyle. And and continuous rumination about, like, yeah. who's going to hook me up and when is my phone going to ring and... Right. So so when you have a secure, predictable supply, you're... And, and again, I think this all relates to, I think, dopamine and motivation and things. I think, you know, your body kind of sets you up for accomplishing what you need to accomplish. 
And when you can when you can calm that voice down where where it's just, hey, there's drugs, they're they're available. And and we see this, you know, when we start on like or, you know, oral agonist therapy of uh, Spoxone or methadone and and that all stabilizes, then you you can you can really do a lot at that point because then you can start analyzing the patterns, right? You can start, okay, how often do you use? Okay, I'm once in the morning, once in the, okay, well, what can we do? I can even well one of the things I often try to do is squeeze out drugs from certain periods. So like, let's not use before noon, right? Yeah. Let, let's try to get that out or, or not be high at work or whatever. And so we'll just start trying to squeeze that out. But if you have someone who's like actively still in that, you know, again, that, oh God, to use the term, I don't know any of that, you know, um, I, I want to say, you know, addict thinking is the conventional term, but I, I would just say, um, you know, fixated thinking, you know, if they, if they, if they start, you know, fixated on when can I get and if I'm going to get high, I, I almost find the if I'm going to get high and maybe I'll use as being more addictive than I regularly have the drug and I'm administering it. You see what I'm saying? Well, and there was some interesting research in, I believe, rats where, you had the situation where you would look at the dopamine spikes after becoming accustomed to a drug and those and we can kind of view them as this proxy for a motivation feeling or a or a desire feeling and they would spike more if it became unpredictable so if it was known that every thousand lever presses you got the dose then you would have this dopamine spike regarding the lever to get this benefit but if you actually made it so that sometimes it was a thousand sometimes 500 sometimes 5000 and there was never this reliable source or reliable outcome for the actions then it was actually more that the brain was going off on that on this tangent of of just keep at it you don't know what's going on and it's sort of this this motivational challenge that begins and almost certainly, just based on what people report, it makes sense that you would see that in humans as well, just presenting in a more complex Classic way. behaviorism, right? Intermittent yeah. reinforcement or, or, or varying the reinforcement is more habituating than the consistently rewarding the behavior every time. It's the same sort of thing. So the more unstable you can have in the addictive experience. So, so here's another example, right? I'll have a, you know, some of my patients will come in here and like some of them are on Suboxone and, and then they're like, yeah, my Suboxone's running out or in a few days or they poorly manage that, right? Or, or, you know, the idea of their medicine. So that's one of the first things. Again, I, my first step in any addiction treatment is not abstinence. I, I tell them I could give a shit about your abstinence. I need stabilization. Why? Because I can't have you fucking overdosing on the street and shit like that. That's my, my problem. So, um, so yeah. So once right off the bat, we're in stabilization and even that management of like the medicine, like I'm saying Suboxone, for example, um, it's it's often piss poor, you know, or, or hey, I took four, you know, I took four milligrams for a few days and then I'll have two, but then I'm sort of running out. All of that is messy and dangerous and not great. And what I really want, again, is just give me give me two weeks to a month of nice consistency and then let's let's make changes from there. But I do not want to chase after abstinence right off the bat unless the person is fully, you know, detoxed or whatever, and that's what they want to be doing. And hey, I'm quitting right now. Um, it's always safety first. And that and that I, you know, again, I, I believe the statistic is 800% increase for someone going inpatient residential when they're discharged for overdose. 
Um, so oh, that's yeah, all, because that, you know, yeah, that's you know that in those situations, they are not even bringing up, hey, if something happens and you use, keep in mind that you can't do what you were doing before. I guarantee you that conversation is never had, which is so in- irresponsible. I mean, if you have done something to change the actual nature of the brain, making it more susceptible to an issue... And you don't let the person know. I mean, these are not neurochemists. You know, these are not addiction researchers. They're just patients. They don't they don't necessarily know other than a friend happened to die because, you know, they were detoxed. And and there's a huge rise in the in the possibility of severe overdose. So but that's because the only goal in that situation is just get them off, send them out, move on. He, they're clean now. They're quote unquote clean. That is a, t- I got to tell you, that's my scariest time in treatment is like if, if somebody is like uh, coming out of residential and they want to use this for aftercare or whatever or something like that. Um, I'm always terrified. I'm like, okay, family members, everybody's going to the doctor and we're all getting prescriptions of Narcan and everybody's going to learn how to use that. Yeah. Everybody's, and then you know what's really crazy? Here's what's really nuts. Now, again, I'm dealing with parents and these are, these are folks who often have very traditional views of addiction and things like that. You know, I'm a huge fan that if you were going to use a relapse, and of course it's not often that predicted, but one of the reasons I promote engagement so much, even in the face of drug use, is because if someone was to relapse, truthfully, I can't tell you how much more I would want them coming home and being like, mom, I'm going to shoot up now in my, in, in my room. Leave your door open, honey, so I can fucking access you if you overdose. I, I I mean, I'm totally serious on this. Any yeah. any condition where I can get someone with, with a safe monitor or with naltrexone or, and, and I understand you may be as a parent heartbroken to see that. And I'm not, by the way, you know, suggesting like enabling and like, or to the point where you're like, all right, well, we're just, you know, drug use, no problem, knock yourself out. But I'm definitely into having like strong behavioral contracts and understanding and and crisis planning that if you are going to do this, how do we make this where you do not die? That is all I care about. (laughs) We'll we'll deal with all your sobriety issues later, but not dying. I got to make sure that's in place. And some folks are difficult, have a difficult time. Does that mean I can continue to use him? Often family members will even see that. But, uh, regardless, I mean, usually we're, we're pretty much all on the same page. And clearly there's efforts being made to reduce or eliminate the drug use. That's why they're, they're here in the first place. So yeah, having some safe principles. I put it this way. I've never, I've never sort of introduced some safety plan. Plan and people are like, well, I'm just going to fucking go home and relapse in front of my parents. <laughs> like nobody's ever like exploited yeah. that, you know, which so bringing this to the family. One of the things that's always difficult for people is figuring out how when they're presented with somebody they know, even a family member who is using drugs in a way that is clearly dangerous or addictive, you know, where do they even start? You know, like how what kind of engagement between the family and the user, should there be? Here's where a family member wants to be on all this issue. And I'm hoping they're out there listening. And even folks with addiction, I mean, you, you know, they're struggling too. And the family doesn't know what to do. I mean, a lot of, like I said, the family's a lot of time like, hey, you know, get out or whatever. Or if I just turn the screws strong enough, they'll, they'll quit. Well, I believe in the exact opposite approach of all of that. So, so what we do here is we actually, uh, we, again, 
again, understanding about relapse, understanding about these safety issues. And here's actually a really cool point. So so the opposite, again, right, this is so Johan Hari-ish, um, the, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection. So if I have someone using or whatever, I already have structured plans in place with the parents. I say, number one, what you're going to do, stay calm. <laughs> right? Stay calm, take a breath, relax. It's, it, you know, again, our issues, our priority is safety. We'll get to the addiction later. So I want my parents maintaining engagement with the individual struggling with the drug use. Again, this is not enabling them. This is not like, okay, well, and again, if there was some sort of limited structure where, hey, we're getting you a clean supply of something for a limited time, or this is what we're doing, terrific, right? And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be enabling, but I, the worst thing for the patient, especially when it comes to addiction, right? Just like I talked about when, uh, you know, a person loses their job, their addiction becomes exacerbated. I want those parents and family members and loved ones and spouses and all that stuff staying engaged and connected, right? So, so thank about it. The individual with addiction, they're going to want to pull away. They're going to want to hide because number one, they're super embarrassed. They're filled with shame. They don't want to do the drugs in front of you. You're a you know, you're a, you know, a, a, a lame sourpuss and you're no fun. <laughs> But that is the key to the whole thing, at least as best as a peripheral family member can do is, hey, man, I'm right in your life. You're using. I understand. How are we going to make that, you know, safer or and it may be where if you're if they're in the home or whatever, look, we can't have you in the home. There's other kids or this is how we can do it. That That's all fine. So so consequences. Absolutely. Natural, logical. That is all good. You want to be responding to the issue for for safety's sake and the life. And, and those around, of course. But what you never want to do is you, this idea of like cutting someone off. Again, I should qualify that too. I'm not saying don't cut them off. If, if you, let, let me say this one thing behaviorally, okay? The worst thing that people can do behaviorally when it comes to kids or, or anybody is not allow the world to reflect back the, the experience that that person is dishing out. So if you are shitting on the world and shitting on the people around you and are abusive and are abusive to yourself and whatever, and the response by your parent is to completely accommodate that and be like, that's all good. You know, I listened to the Drug Classroom podcast and they said it was all right. No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm absolutely saying to to bolster yourself and protect you and protect the patient, all that. But you don't need to throw your relationship on the fire for the sake of some sort of belief that if you're just hard enough on the person, they're going to suddenly, you know, resolve and be like, well, that was too painful. Now, you can have emotional experiences that trigger points of change in all of this, but the, often the safety factors are just too great uh, to do that. So, so remaining engaged, remaining connected, I pull if people are using more um, I'm pulling them closer. Now, let me say one other thing. Remember that drug use a lot of the times, especially if someone's in treatment, we're dealing with like relapse and things like that. So even so even the relapse, a, a huge focus, I'm less concerned with relapse and more concerned with the, the outcomes of the relapse. So what do we usually see? Conventional treatment. We see people relapse. They go off the deep end. Everybody, fuck you. You, you, you didn't follow, um, you didn't follow your treatment. You lost it. You're a failure, blah, 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 blah. 
it is so much more worse when people respond to that as opposed to, okay, you relapse. Like, for example, Seth, here's here's proof in the pudding, at least in my little experience here with, with treatment. So when my guys relapse, they still make it to all their appointments, right? So they make it to their appointments, yeah. they're still in here the next day. And so we're immediately looking at what happened, where was the, you know, puka, which means hole in Hawaii, right? So where's the pukas? What did we miss? How can we make that better? So so even if they relapse, right? Oh, hey, I've been sober for two weeks, but then I relapse. Even if that happens, I'm like, great. <laughs> you're right here back in, back in, tr- you're here in treatment. You're here with your sponsor or maybe parent or supportive person. Um, you didn't let this spin out of control. You didn't go missing for three days, which is typically what you'll see in a lot of these problematic cases as they just vanish for a while and, and do their thing. Um, so you can even, even if they continue to use, you can mitigate a lot of the harms of the experience of using just by having that good engagement and rapport. You see? There's sort of an odd form of of math that people seem to do when they're going through treatment where if they go a week and then they use and then it becomes three weeks and they use and, you know, a month or two and then they end up using again, it becomes not a sign that they are changing their habits in a positive way, but rather that even if they go two months or even if they go three months, they're still totally susceptible to addiction So they're just going to be locked into this drug use pattern for the rest of their life. And it's this constantly discouraging thing. And you see even the way that people respond to family members or, say, celebrities or something. They've been doing something else for eight years and then something came up and then they returned to their drug use and nothing has changed. They're just back in the exact same situation. And that brings on, as you've often said, this immense feeling of shame and, and disappointment around the entire situation, which couldn't possibly be the way that you would want somebody to I mean, if you're treating somebody with depression and you're going through therapy or you had medication and suddenly your your depressive episodes are occurring, you know, every six months and are not constant, it's not like you failed at being a patient because you've reduced your depression. Perfect, perfect example. Honestly, if you had if you had relapsing depression every six months and it used to be continuous, I mean, we'd all be high fiving and they'd be talking about, well, yeah, it happens, but I can manage that on occasion. And 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 I would say that's exactly what I would like to see in addiction. And again, if somebody wants to, you know, abstinence for life and that's their thing, great, we're doing that. And if that's your goal, terrific. Uh, we're going to do the best we can. I, you know, motivation is often not a priority for me. I'm looking at actions, planning, strategizing, interventions, you know, I, I, the talk and wish, you know, wishful thinking, I want to be sober. Well, I, I, you know, I'm more interested in show me your, your Google calendar we set up that has, you know, all the time filled in. So we're not leaving big blocks of free time where your brain is sort of floating out there. Like, Hey, here's an opportunity to use, you know? So, so a much more on the action, uh, tangible step side than, oh, here's what I want or here's what I believe or, oh, I failed. Just, just shut up and, and work on today. <laughs> it's like, you know, stop being so dramatic, right? So. And when it comes to relapse, one of the things that seems to me, and I think there's been at least some papers on this supporting it, and it's definitely become more common in treatment centers, is the focus on mindfulness and, and meditation skills. 
And, you know, that's not in any way a religious thing, but rather from the way I see it, is building some kind of additional separation between a desire that comes up and your ability to inhibit following that desire. Do you think those skills are useful in, in reducing, you know, even if it's not actually to extend abstinence, but rather to make the drug use safer so people just can include drug use in their That's life, interesting. but they have enough enough control to realize the boundaries of what would be considered safe and they can stay within that safe range. Right. So so with alcohol, for example, on the Sinclair guys, yeah, planning, We, we I, lo- I love planning drug use. Boy, there's nothing that really like disappoints <laughs> the experience of addiction and like, all right, well, here it is. Because at that point, you're almost just like using sort of to feel well. Um, yeah. but, but absolutely structuring things around that, you know, setting those goals, not leaving it, it, it randomly out there. That's all going to be helpful rather than, you know, again, just, okay, be clean. You know what I mean? And, and it seems in some ways like the, the motivational state of, drug use when it appears is similar to a period of anxiety or depression where suddenly your entire consciousness is suddenly so focused on this one goal and it could be triggered by a friend you normally have drugs with and then you see them but you've been avoiding them then suddenly your brain is filled with thoughts that seems to be the moment where that kind of calm down self-reflective impulse that you can build with say a a mindfulness technique could be useful to kind of interrupt that process yeah drug use is in these micro moments right i mean it's like we talked about it's not really always happening it's happening in these moments so so in regard to mindfulness so here's the techniques that we use in, in treatment that I find the most helpful. And again, you'll notice my inherent lazy, you know, shortest path to the end here, um, effectiveness. So the first one that almost all of our patients get, and it's, and I even question that because I'm like, God, am I really customizing things if, if everybody's sort of getting this? So in mindfulness, you know, we're talking about regulation, right? So, so if you are running around and you're in like hyperspace mode there and using all your fast instead of your slow thinking and, you're just racing around like that. Um, that is not the state you want to be. I want to have you so far out of your automatic sort of thinking that, uh, you know, I, I, anything to get you away from that. So, so the first technique that everybody sort of learns is four, seven, eight breathing. And if you Google four, seven, eight breathing, um, there's a little website. It's a little even cartoon. Of course, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, huge fan of uh, or i'm a huge fan of his um he is actually does a a a, uh, a a training on 478 breathing online but but nothing i have found is better than you know sets of three to five four seven eight breathing in for four right so empty breath one two three four in and then holding for seven and then out for eight, right? So so that, and then you do that in sets of three to five, that immediately seems to quell the the thought storms or whatever is going on or, or uh, you know, uh, impulsivity to a, to a point where the person kind of uh, gets back into their prefrontal cortex and is like, okay, I'm thoughtful now and mindful and I feel myself and here's what, what's going on. So that's helpful. Um, the other one we'll do is urge surfing, which is, is also a kind of a mindful exercise where you're, where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're in your breath. 
So you're, you're sort of tending to breath and you're just allowing the experience of craving. I mean, craving that, that it, you know, it's running through your head and you feel it in your body and you're feeling like that tension and, ah, uh, right? This, this, this internal experience. Um, so, so the ability of kind of riding that out. And again, you can find that, um, audio online. Um, urge surfing is great. The other thing we use is Spire. So Spire is a device out of uh, Stanford University. And that's a really cool thing. So, so that clips on your belt and you can, it'll actually monitor your respiration. And when you're tense, it will actually trigger you to take deep breaths. So your whole sort of, set is 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 refined over time and I, it's cool i can monitor that on like a little dashboard on my computer and things like that so i can i can not only see when my patients are tense if they're using spire but i can see actually um where they are like uh so it has geolocation on there so i can see where they're tense when they're tense all that kind of cool stuff and so overall we want to bring down that hyper excitation that comes along with addiction and just people you know a lot of people in general man are spinning out over there and i know you guys aren't in hawaii and i wish you could have the you know many years of big island experience of slowing down that i that i've actually had and i'm from miami so it wasn't always like that i'm a huge like electronic music like dance guy but i also like like you know i'm kind of turned redneck on that um but but yeah so so Everything that can support re-regulation, riding out cravings. You can also use distracting techniques, right? You can use citric acid sprays, which unfortunately I hear melt your teeth out, but but they're fun. That's like the little sour sprays. You can also dip your head in a bucket of water, freezing water, any of these things that cause like this massive sort of response from the body where the body feels under threat. I even was wondering that in the 478 breathing, if when you're holding your breath or letting out and you kind of feel like rushing it, um, your body sort of has to pay attention because it's like, man, my oxygen levels are, are potentially being compromised. So it sort of pulls you out of more uh, trivial thinking. So mindfulness is key. Regulation is key. Staying uh, you know, in balance is key. Getting enough sleep is key. Making sure you're getting enough neurotransmitter production as a, as a result of restorative sleep and nutrition is key. You know, all of that stuff. So mindfulness, huge, huge fan, a- essential, especially for riding out some of those more difficult times. And you would expect to get a fair amount of attention, and I think it is getting more, but especially since there is this focus on the same areas that appear to be beneficial impacted by mindfulness are the areas that people point to when discussing this disease model are, are these instances where you know they point to it being a disease in the sense of a significant change in, in these dopamine pathways in these mesolimbic pathways and then some impairment on the, the frontal cortex side and those are the exact areas especially when it comes to the, the frontal cortex which are positively affected under meditation so that's not actually in my opinion evidence of the disease model, but rather it would be sort of the exact counterweight in many ways to, especially like after you've gone through core therapy in terms of giving somebody a tool for their daily use and how to deal with their daily thoughts that, you know, are based around drugs. 
that seems like it would be, you know, useful. And I, I don't know how widespread it is in practice now. I don't know if, you know, how much the, the dominant treatment includes mindfulness, yeah. but it seems like it should be in there. Mindfulness is a, is, is, is a pretty big thing now. Um, as much as like those internal mechanisms for managing mindfulness, I mean, when a person first comes in, and again, we're doing outpatient treatment here, not inpatient. So, so as much as mindfulness is valuable, I mean, structuring, right? So, so one of the things yeah. we, ha- our patients do is like I was saying, a complete, like I want Google calendar filled to the max. I want to know where you are at every freaking moment or, or what, what you're pl- or, or actually mostly planning, right? So, so I don't want someone feeling like, what am I doing? I want them knowing where they're going to be, when they're going to be. And then what we do is we share those calendars with, fa- with like family members or their sponsor or supportive people, right? So then they have all this crazy accountability. So as much as even those internal mechanisms are helpful, man, the external stuff is good too. I mean, you structure yourself to be on the other side of town where you can't access drugs or, you know, another one of my clients buys, you know, uh, here's one of my great harm reduction ones. Uh, a parent that holds the kids cannabis during their work days so they can't access it. And then, so he's only smoking like when he's on his days off kind of a thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so remember the brain, you know, the brain goes so far. I was listening to a podcast yesterday of a guy who had like a seizure part of his brain that was, you know, creating seizures removed. And then he became like hypersexual. And so, so all these, these sort of things, you know, great, great if you can get to a place with mindfulness and all that. But I also want to see patients, especially at the beginning, as we talk about neuroplasticity and things, securing their environment, securing what they need to do to get to, to achieve their goals, bringing on the other people in their environment to, to help them support those goals. You know, then of course, using the mindfulness to, to sort of deal with craving and all that stuff. But, but of course, we're looking at, you know, weeks before we start to sort of, br- I, I think, really break down some of the old patterning. Um, you know, and of course that runs up to two to three years before, you know, we really get like this, this sort of diminishing, dis, diminished, you know, addiction to the point where we probably see, where we probably couldn't identify the differences in the brain. I maybe you can't even do that now, but, but, um, you know, we're, we're literally, here's how I put it, Seth, right? So, so I almost look at it this. Sure, you can have thoughts and behaviors and all that stuff. And, and I see the brain is simply an organ trying to catch up. Right. It's trying to accommodate whatever kind of thoughts or experiences dealing with it. If you give it stress, it sort of wires around accommodating stress. If you give it calmness, well, you know, right now crazy things happen in my life and it's like, Oh, okay. Well, let me deal with that because I've, I've trained my brain over time. I, I don't allow myself to blow off the handle or to have crazy reactions. And if I do, I'm doing four, seven, eight, you know, so. So uh, it's going to take time. It's going to take conditioning. You're you're going to be coping. Um, but again, you're you're sort of trying to reshape your brain into one that is not impulsive, not reactive, but one that is more few, you know, forward thinking, planning, deliberate, mindful, all of that. One of the encouraging things, and you've talked about this before, is, and this applies to addiction, it applies to other areas for therapy, is that there's some pretty good reason to believe a specific kind of treatment model or way of dealing with a patient matters less than the the therapeutic alliance. That one is interesting for 
actual psychotherapists, but it also seems encouraging because it seems to suggest to me that there are a lot of things that good emotional connections between people who are not therapists or they're not trained in psychology, but they can have that kind of interaction with a person in a beneficial way. Because at the end of the day, the thing that matters the most, or at least how I've heard it described in the context of actual psychotherapy is that it is that relationship that is that sort of key thing. And if you could have multiple because you have a great spouse or a great friend or something, it would be, you know, also useful. So it's, it doesn't always have to be medicalized. Absolutely. Um, that and, you, you have to find yeah. another person to, to get I, help. I would even say, you know, I'm a big fan of professional, but I would say medically that could actually be problematic because a lot of medical providers are not going to give you that connection. Um, yeah. If anybody wants to follow up on this, just Google interpersonal neurobiology. Um, Alan Shore, um, other big fans of myself, you know, uh, uh, that I'm fans of is, uh, Dr. Scott Miller in regard to the engagement issue. Um, Dr. Scott Leepak, who actually I work with, who does, uh, psychological testing for us. Um, he's a huge fan of this. But yes, the, the greatest tool that we seem to have to re-regulate during periods of difficulty and stress or, or, or those types of thing, or dysregulation, I should say, is typically a strong, intimate, connected bond with another human being. So through what you, what essentially is happening there is you want to have, so, so somebody comes into my practice. I'm, I'm again, I've, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I'm, you know, pretty, I'm, I'm so different in my sessions. Outside of my sessions, I'm spazzy and whatever, but in here I'm sort of settled and thoughtful and calm. And when they come in here and they're just, ah, and I'm just like, just look at me and breathe. And we're just sort of looking and we're just sort of syncing up, right? So we're getting that attunement. We start to attune with each other, feel it coming down, right? And we just sort of in the space together and through our connection, I don't know if that's a mirror neuron thing or what's going on, but through that interpersonal connection, it allows us to re-regulate. So one of the things we often say in, um, in therapy, you know, a couples therapy is, you know, I, I only, I, one of you can only be crazy at any given time. So if you have one person freaking out in a relationship, ideally the other person is, not written, you know, they're not responding. They're not explaining. They don't have to get into that. They're just in the space with the person. And ideally that, that other, the, the, the person that's in a healthier space sort of can maintain that. And they're just with the other person. And that really can allow the other person to settle down. So, um, yeah, interpersonal neurobiology, very cool stuff. We are not individuals as much as we, I think we think we are. One of the issues with the drug classroom is uh, a good portion. It's not really an issue. It's just sort of a, a unique aspect of it is that a large portion of the people who listen and watch are young adults or teenagers. And that seems to pose some sort of interesting situations because of the, I mean, there's tons of full-grown adults, but there are many emails I get from people who are younger, and sure. it's always hard to sort of figure out how to deal with yeah. those situations. Good, but but I would say, great job reaching out, guys. Good job out there, right? Not being isolated, not but yeah. not right. So I'm, I'm right off the bat. I want to, be, I want to high five all you guys who've written in. The no, I'm glad class. that they yes. reach out. I mean, yes. it amazes me, and I'm glad they're. I'm glad, you know, whether it's talking about addiction or talking about how to use something safer, I'm thrilled that anybody actually reaches out and has that question. 
and then changes their drug use to be safer. But there is this interesting thing of, you know, say in the case of addiction, you know, how does treatment differ for a 16 year old than a 30 year old? Yeah, well, let me let me kind of think about that. So I would say that for most adolescents that I work with, so there's less of I would say there's even you know, it would depend. Some I haven't had too many adolescents that are like really blown out, man. And I used to have that on uh, on Big Island is you'd have some super severe cases of addiction at a very early age. We don't see that too much here. So I would say that the difference would be so, for example, I wouldn't I'd probably be more reluctant in referring for maybe medicine when it came to addiction. I'd also look for more um, environmental supports. It's funny, and again, this may be my own bias, but like, so for example, the Spire device, right? I might, we might use the Spire to kind of augment their own personal, um, you know, uh, awareness because, of course, they don't have as much awareness. They haven't been around that much and their brains aren't developed to, to sort of do that. So, so something like the Spire device might help with, with where, where more traditional like mindfulness training or deep breathing training came in that, you know, if they're, they're, they're probably more apt to use that. Um, we're looking at tons of peer support stuff. So it used to be, you know, oh, wow. Well, your parents were bad to you and they screwed you up. Well, guess what? kids, you know, child effects, um, great paper on that. You can have good parents and be a, you know, a crappy kid and drive them crazy too. So that dynamic, that dynamic works mm. bo- both ways. I, I just want to put that out there um, for maybe all the parents to take a little less responsibility and the kids to take more. Um, so yeah, so we're looking at probably a less, less medication focused Oh, so with that pure effects, what I was going to say. So the the most prevailing effect in regard to a, to a, an adolescent's life is, is, like I said, not the parents. It's actually the peer group, right? So the best thing parents can be doing is shaping the peer group. However, so in terms of intervention, so immediately, if somebody's coming into treatment, I need to, and typically if they're adolescents as well, they're not working, I am really looking at activities. So I'm looking at whether it be youth groups or martial arts or go work in the in the in the kalo fields with the you know doing tarot and and community based stuff i need those people to be connected to something enriching or the adolescents especially enriching and rewarding this is obviously adults too but um, but I need for them to start experiencing a, a different rewards outside of the drug experience, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's much like the adults in that, Hey, we're, we're kind of realigning your life. But, but a lot of the kids, I mean, they're, they're not there. So, so if I can't have a kid who's using in the evenings, right? He gets out of school, probably uses in school. Um, but at the same time, they can be going to martial arts uh, in the evenings and that keeps them out of high risk scenarios or maybe potential for greater drug use. Great. Um, that's what we want to focus on. Um, if the drug use starts to get more problematic, I think with parents, they're, you know, they're more likely to be like, you know, you're going to treatment or whatever. Um, so also I would say I'm probably a little bit more aggressive in a way with not allowing potentially more of like a maintenance condition with adolescents. Um, and, and again, this may be my own biases, but I'm just sort of 
framing that up. So, so I would say for kids, we're looking at far more on the social support side. We could use medicine if there's underlying uh, psychological issues that are, are problematic for craving. Um, actually, here's a nice one. So for kids, you know, one of the things might be something like nutritional support. So you're looking at like 5-HTP or theanine as well. Um, the adults uh, here like that also. Um, we don't use words like anxiety and depression with those things. We'll use words like tension for theanine and mood for 5-HTP um, to, to kind of navigate those those waters of uh, potentially, you know, I'm not a prescriber or anything. So, yeah, so there's still a number of ways you can make things easier, help with mood, help for help with the difficulty. If the supplementation doesn't work, of course, like let's deal with a psychiatrist or whatever who may be able to help. Um, less focus on labels, more focus on social interactions and structuring and all that. So yeah, even more, less focus on the drug when it comes to kids, I would say. In cases where a parent is concerned about their child using drugs, but it's not actually addiction, they're really just having normal experimentation and say they're 16 or 17, you know, how do you think parents should deal with that? It seems to me an ideal society in the future has drugs of all kinds integrated in the way that alcohol is, where you could you could picture a 16-year-old, you know, having alcohol every few weeks as part of a family thing. And nobody's going to look at that as particularly concerning, especially a common dose of alcohol. And we know it happens in other countries. We know alcohol can be more integrated into the culture. So when I imagine these situations for kids in the U.S. or anywhere for a larger set of drugs, how do you deal with that? Because there are situations where a drug that is, you know, it's not innocuous, but it's not physically dangerous uh, acutely like cannabis Parents will, you know, find a tiny amount of cannabis and freak out to the point of pulling them away from their friends and all these things because there must be an issue. They just need to be grounded. You know, what would you kind of say, you know, about that, you know, how to approach the issue of you, uh, this experimental form You want to have, see, and this is where, where prohibition in society has failed parents. Uh, we have taught parents that you need to, you know, be scared, freak out and all that thing. Uh, that is all, like I said, the opposite of reaction. In a perfect world, what would happen is if somebody, first of all, you would be maintaining a good relationship with your child. And, and, and again, in that perfect world, your child is, is honest with you. They feel like they can come to you. As a matter of fact, so one of the things right off the bat as a parent that I would want to be saying is no matter what you do, I want you to know that you can come to me and tell me what you're doing. It's not only that, you can tell me, screw that. I want to know what are you what are you doing? How's it feel? What's working? I want to know right from the beginning if you're experimenting with drugs. What was your experience like with that? Was did you do it safely? Oh, you're going even if you're going to a party this weekend. When are you drinking? How much are you drinking? What's the plan? Who's driving? The same sort of thing. I would love to see with any substances. And again, if you are melting down when you are finding a small amount of drugs in your kid's room, well, congratulations, you're potentially alienating them and exacerbating their addiction by reacting the way you did. Because what essentially you've done is it was more important for you to have a little meltdown in your concern rather than potentially maintaining the relationship with your kid, which which in under these circumstances could be life-saving. So much more for 
parents to be in, you know, inquisitive and understanding and learning. God, if my kid ever, you know, did LSD or something, I'd be like, dude, I want to, I want to hear your whole experience. Do you feel like you want to go back? Is that something you you feel like that when, when would be the place of that? Right. So I'd even want to have some training in there. And I train the kids here. Like, I mean, if, you, if they're going out drinking and, and of course they're, you know, they're underage and shit and I, I don't want them doing any of that. And especially with alcohol, which is so critically dangerous around adolescence here. Um, so, so the openness, the honesty, the safety first practice, that's another thing. Look up the safety first. Oh, there's a great reference. Um, Drug Policy Alliance, safety first manuals, you know, have the whole thing there on parents talking to their kids. And again, not talking to their kids. You know what? If you're a parent, don't talk to your kids. Have them ask them, inquire about like what is going on with them. They'll they'll probably be excited to tell you so they don't have to call Seth Fitzgerald in the drug classroom. And if you're a really good parent, you probably recommend that they do actually get in touch with this, with the drug classroom. But again, we want to maintain rapport in be inquisitive, be investigative. Don't be as concerned with the drug unless it's inherently, you know, can be life threatening in the short term. Um, as much as you want to be really understanding your kid's relationship with this and you want to be a part of that and, and also with the understanding that it could become problematic and, and what might that look like and how can we mitigate that? And, you know, with those types of conversations, drug use becomes way less thrilling, way less, oh, I'm doing this and sneaking away and much more like they're doing with Colorado, um, in Colorado with cannabis now. And they're sort of building these smoke shops that look like Starbucks. I always figure the best way to get someone to stop using drugs is like turn it into a Starbucks or something like boring if you're in some subculture. But, um, so hopefully that helps parents and kids out there is, um, keep, you must maintain the engagement no matter what you're doing. If you lose your rapport, like e- e- even in drug treatment, right? That's, that's the biggest shame that we never talk about. We always talk about the patient's lack of readiness or some bullshit like that. And what the real problem is, is the poor retention of clients, the lack of engagement and the disconnection that results in the patient. Um, I, I just had a few patients recently where I was sort of a little bit stronger, a little bit more like, hey, this is what we're doing, you know, adolescents. And well, they're, they're gone now. They don't, they don't want to see me. They're not happy with what they received here. And they're doing their thing and I hope their and their trajectory isn't good. So, um, so yeah, I, I, as a result of not maintaining the engagement or whatever, um, hopefully those guys are okay, but maybe not. So you can see that the consequence of not having the relationship and, and reacting in your own, uh, your own, to your own belief systems and alienating your child is just the absolute opposite thing you should be doing, uh, for your kids in that, having that experience. Teenagers seem to be both more, I mean, they're definitely more likely to be rebellious and also impulsive. So those things have to be kept in mind. And I was actually writing something about this recently where, you know, it's one of the things that I consider when talking to two teenagers is that they can use drugs in a safe way, but that impulsive factor might be stronger for them. But even though that is the case, I think post 13 or so, the average teenager is sort of looking for two things, which one is to please their family, but also to have respect. Therefore, a dialogue in which their reason for being interested in drugs 
is heard by the parents, respected, understood, and there is a focus on ways to reduce harm of saying, I'm not going to be, as a parent, I'm not going to be mad at you if you go to a party in a few weeks and you do something. I care about you being safe, but that's not really going to concern me. And then that is showing that the the parent trusts and respects the child in a way that won't foster a rebellious nature, even though the average teenager may have both goals for pleasing, but also being respected. If you are totally locking them down to, you know, they can't stray from your idea of a perfect way of being even a little without sort of all respect for the child being lost, then they they'll move entirely in the rebellious section or direction. So there seems to be this sort of area where you could compromise and everybody's happier. There's open dialogue. Mm -hmm. There's not a cultivation of rebellious nature. So it just seems like that has the potential to work in a lot of families and reduce the chance of people using drugs in a a harmful way. You know, sometimes it really just is the case that kids get interested in drugs and they just want to try it a little and there's no pushback from the parents and then that's it. Com- they just end up kind of using it a little bit and that's completely fine. seems normal. We see the the spike in adolescence of experimentation. Uh don't shove it underground. It, you know, drugs can be potentially dangerous enough uh with 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 being unregulated in the age of prohibition don't force the kid to shove it underground where they're now at greater danger so yeah absolutely one of the last things i wanted to talk about forced treatment and drug courts and things of that sort obviously you can make an argument that being sort of encouraged to go into treatment versus going to jail is a beneficial thing potentially, but it seems so far from ideal. And I'm not sure how it impacts treatment outcomes. If somebody comes to somebody looking for treatment versus simply going to avoid prison, which seems like an obvious thing to do. Do you think those are good policies? Do you think there should be forced intervention to, you know, actually compel people to go into treatment? Um, Personally, um, compelling someone to go into treatment, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I know that I, I mean, I'm, I'm super against drug prohibition to start with. Um, you know, my, even on the, even on the Republican side, I, I don't want to effing pay for anybody who has like a drug problem. I don't want to pay 45000 a year in taxes to like incarcerate them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to be a caring individual, but my, uh, you know, my uh, basic sort of sense of like, um, you know, money that I earned. And, and I, I mean that I, I really respect like the guys on the um, on the right side or are on the uh, Republican side of the argument who are just sensitive about the cost. Um, so, so that alone in regard to, so, so I always look at the behavior, right? So if I had someone, a family member who was say they're schizophrenic or whatever, and they choosing not to do treatment and all that, and their behavior is destructive to the community. Now, again, in prohibition, it's destructive to the community They, you know, they, they, you know, they're shoplifting so they can afford the drugs, which again, sort of makes this a, a vicious circle. But if, so I would, I would personally feel that if there was danger to others or the self, that there should be an intervention. Other than that, I mean, we have patients that are mandated. So for example, like I'll have, I'll have patients that are like, 
you know, they're mandated. And so they're, they're abstinent based on their, you know, t- being terrified of returning to prison. Well, that's definitely a motivator. Make no mistake. Strong, emotional, you know, experiences can be absolutely motivating and like, oh my gosh, I was going to lose my kids. So I never wanted to do that again. So I quit. You know, that, that can happen. Um, I hate, I hate sort of the peripheral experience around that like i said the cost the courts all the all the rest of it that makes it so messy um i do see it as helpful for some people and i bet some people even would agree with that that hey man you know i i was really struggling and this is what helped so you know i don't like court mandated treatment i find it i i'll I'll say this from a treatment perspective i find it somewhat abusive you know i'm a therapist i'm supposed to be client-centered and i've i've spent this you know hour and a half talking about how you want to be attuned with your client well There's a certain aversiveness that automatically comes if a person comes in here and they have to be here and they have to complete treatment. Now, here's another interesting thing is some of the guys who are in that condition, they like doing therapy with me. They're feeling good about it. They potentially, you know, maybe they do or maybe they don't, but they're saying they want to continue even. They're like, man, this has been, you know, helpful, da, 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 da. Um, so, you know, if somebody is so out of control, and again, when I say out of control, I mean like where we are really seeing problematic behavior against society. (laughs) Again, if that wasn't in the age of prohibition and it was just sort of like, oh, I get drunk, so I, you know, peed in the supermarket floor or something like that, (laughs) you know, I could, I could see something like that, but it's very hard to, to tease that out, um, knowing that how, uh, destructive, torturous, murderous, and horrible the current system is. I mean, the current system, let's face it, right? In the Philippines, for example, I mean, they've, they've just, uh, you know, they're committing genocide over there. They've killed 5,000, you know, in, you know, citizens, people with, with drug addiction because that's the way they feel. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's the end, ga- like the, the end point of this spectrum of care, which is, you know, twist the screws hard enough, whatever happens to them, well, so be it. Um, so all of it is so messy. That's, and again, so you see the difficulty teasing it out. So yes, there could be legitimate reasons for sort of supporting someone where their drug use was putting themselves or others in danger. I'm not talking about little bullshit shopping charges or, oh, we sold a little weed or whatever. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we, we need to do now. So um yeah so yeah, that seems like a really it's a little you know, bit big differentiator and this would apply to anything including say psychotic disorders it would be like the equivalent yeah, of point. somebody has a psychotic disorder and they're being forced to go into treatment versus they did something bad to other people because of their disorder so for the sake of everybody you need to treat them but you wouldn't you know 19 year old starts coming down with schizophrenia you don't take them out of society and put them away it should all be the the same way that you know addiction would be you know similar yeah no there's a big difference between just a drug related offense and that was mainly what i was getting at are instances where the only thing the person did was either a minor crime or a purely drug related crime And they're being forced into either, hey, you have to go to treatment and remain abstinent and we're going to keep testing you to make sure you're abstinent or you're going to be put in jail. And also, if you fail the abstinence aspect, you then are are immediately going to jail, which just seems incredible. I mean, there are obviously people and I always feel somewhat awkward when I hear these stories where they say, you know, the moment that I was able to switch my life around was when I was 
you know, locked behind, you know, a jail cell. And that was when my life improved. And okay, well, that could very well be true for you. But the way that that impacts other people, I don't think is positive, because it sort of suggests to the wider society, hey, even the addicts, think interfering with their life and forcing them into some terrible situation can be good. And that seems a little dangerous, you know, like it's whatever helped you. That's great. But, you know, as a policy, that seems a little bit off. And 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 Seth, I'll I'll say this as well. Drug treatment is always sort of operated from this. Oh, you were doing this and now you need to stop doing this. There are such more palatable ways to engage people with addiction, even if they're using. Um, I'm a you know I'm about to put an ad out there. It's funny. It's um one of the things I say on there is that you know uh, willingness to quit is is not a barrier to uh, care at all. You know, so so I want people knowing if they don't want to quit or whatever, let's start the process, start the engagement, begin to make improvements. I haven't had anyone come in here and been like, man, I want to I want to make things worse or use more. I mean, I don't, nobody ever has done that. They've never come in and actually wanted to use more drugs. So so, yeah. And I've always been sort of on the behavioral side of it. I also don't tolerate if people are like, hey, I got into a car accident and killed you know two people in a DUI but I was drunk so I should get off easy you know I don't believe in that I I think the behavior as it affects others you know that's the measure um, behavior and and again that has nothing to do with drugs I I really could care less what you put in your body I care how does that how does that manifest outward onto yourself and others and you know if you want to be one percent of people who drink alcohol will kill somebody because they were in a car accident, yeah, it's not, well, it's not the it, drug. But, but I mean, there you go, right? So with alcohol, for example, so so now I have to pay for like, you know, some guy to have a liver. Tr- and that's that's even a, a kind of a question. I, I mean, and I know, of course, that that's, a, that's been a thing where it's been, um, you know, organ transplants. Like there was a guy recently who he's like a pot smoker and didn't get an organ transplant yeah. because, yeah. yeah, and some insane shit like that. So... So, I mean, there is a line in terms of costs of society. Those costs are, are typically going to be manifested by nicotine and alcohol, right? I mean, if someone's a nicotine addict, um, how many lung transplants, you know, do do you want to splurge for? Yeah, I think it's a, a difficult, difficult call. I do think this is a an interesting topic area. One of the things I've been pointing out recently is is that if you, let's avoid a entire healthcare debate, but <laughs> um, if you are going to, you know, make the argument for, say, prohibition based upon cost to society, it is not drugs that you should be focused on. 50% of cancer, you know, is coming as a result of lifestyle things that could have been avoided, even larger percent for cardiovascular disease. And the amount that goes into neurodegeneration as a result of diet, lack of exercise, being unhealthy in a variety of ways. So those are the th- people often bring this up, you know, how much it would cost the so I think uh, Ann Coulter, of all people, made the statement that she would be fine with legalization if she didn't have to pay for these things. But does she realize that there are relatively few drugs that people use overall which are heavily connected to massive medical costs right. over a lifetime? True compared to a terrible diet. I mean, if you have to manage cancer or cardiovascular disease for a long period of time, that is incredibly expensive. And people point out the when they're focused on the health issues with drugs, especially non-alcohol, non-tobacco, they're focused on acute overdoses 
it costs nothing to deal with an acute overdose. Either they died or they had to be treated in an emergency department. I mean, that is not a cardiovascular operation. That is not chemotherapy. So in terms of costs, it's a, it's a weird argument that people have. And we saw this show up recently with there was a sort of a local government person in some middle part of the country who was saying that after two cases of giving naloxone, that they would no longer give naloxone to people. They would just move on and they wouldn't save them. And yes, naloxone is way more expensive than it should be. But we are talking about like $50 for a life. And that seems crazy. You know, if you're going to say that all of these other things should be in some way covered by society, it would just seem crazy to, yeah. to say you shouldn't cover you, naloxone. You can eat yourself into oblivion. You can yeah. eat yourself into diabetes. You can do all sorts of things and society is and, and and I'll be honest Seth as as so, sort of like a libertarian on that and, and again as a therapist I don't like and we've talked about this like I I I I spend a lot of time and effort to try to stay healthy right I got a catastrophic insurance care plan I I I really work hard to not burden myself or others with you know extreme costs or whatever like that and and yet, if you're, um, and it, you know, if if you want, you know, uh, well, government will subsidize as much corn and sugar and all that stuff, and you can pack your face and and do all that, and hey, and you know, doctor will say something like, hey, maybe you should cut down on that, and okay, but here's your, you know, your statins and all these other medicines and things like that. It, it kind of drives yep. me crazy to to pay for that when we are supplementing people being unhealthy. And I'll also, one more thing about culture. Um, you know, we're sort of an addictive culture. If you, if you were to live in a world that you had like diverse rewards and things are dynamic and changing and interesting and you, and those out there with sort of addictions, I'm sure you've seen when you've traveled or maybe had diff different places or different experiences at different times, the addiction is very different. And, but, uh, but when you have those diversity of rewards and and you have that purpose filled life and enrichment, um, you know, addiction doesn't sit in there as well as it does a five day a week, you know, uh, you know, seven to seven type of job where you're just repeating and then you get home and then you try to get some relief by drinking, you know, whatever. So so the whole thing is set up for for a lot of addiction, you know, and um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know the better way. I mean, the, the cheapest way and the preventative way would probably be like improving the experience of human beings i mean we're you know we talk about like uh what is that like minimum minimum base you know minimum universal basic basic universal income. income yeah so so i'm very curious as to see how a lot of this turns out once there's even more automation and you or have whatever. the housing first movement who focus on work? giving uh i'm not fully familiar but i just know there's an emphasis on yeah on getting people solving homelessness as a way to deal with yeah. other societal issues, which does make sense. I, mean, yes. I don't necessarily agree with the policy that they would propose. Yeah. However, it is true that stabilizing somebody's life totally. with a job or a house or just those basic things yeah. is way more likely to improve whatever other thing you're identifying as an issue. Yeah. You know, maybe that's it, Seth. Maybe it's not even like, I mean, I guess it's sort of like universal basic income, but maybe if you had, if you had a roof over your head, maybe that's the yeah. baseline, a roof over your head and, mm -hmm. and, and you and you know, and, and your EBT card could only buy you vegetables and meats. Right. And you, 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 yeah. can't, you can't go buy 
fucking boxes of frosted flakes and expect to be like, you know, living the dream off the system, man. I, I, I can't stand that stuff. So, um, so, yeah. So that sounds like a pretty good balance. Before we wrap up, is there anything we didn't really discuss that you wanted to talk about? Um, No, just that. Well, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of medicines and nutritional supplementation that can be profoundly affecting and helpful for dealing with addiction. You know, they'll refer you to a CSAC over here. That's someone who may not even have a college degree. I was a CSAC at one point before I was licensed. Um, you know, you, you, you can, you, you get referred to a CSAC and Hey, they'll treat you, but yet I can refer someone to a, a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist will tell me, well, Hey, I'm not, I'm not trained to uh, deal with addictions as will PCP. So there's this huge gap in sort of who is qualified or able to kind of deal with addiction. That is very strange, like high level providers, unless they've specifically received training, won't do it yet. These sort of lower level providers totally will, but yet the lower level providers typically have no information about medicines and all these different ways that can be like really helpful medically to people dealing with addictions. I would also say that, you know, it doesn't have to be so hard, right? I mean, a lot of times I'm looking at even, you know, e even the route of administration or, or managing dose. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make things better in your life and you don't have to hold out for some grand event to begin doing that. Um, you're in a pattern if you have an addiction. You have a habit. It's all it is. It's no more, no less. And you can start unwinding yourself out of that. So, yeah, no, I think it's a very exciting time to be in addiction. I'll tell you, it's super fun, man. It's so fun. <laughs> like <laughs> starting someone on the Sinclair method is a blast. Like it's not, you yeah. know, other treatment might be so hardcore and we're, we're doing meetings and all that. And here I'm just like, take this pill once, you know, an hour before you you go in there or you, before you start drinking and see what happens. And so there's a lot of easier, better ways of dealing with these things. Um, we, cannabis is a replacement for harder drugs. That's become a thing now. Um, had a pain patient who didn't want to uh, get on opioids and so referred him over to the cannabis doc. And that's also his go-to sort of escape rather than drinking alcohol because he's on probation. And they're like, oh man, I, he's like, I don't want to drink alcohol because when I drink alcohol. It's more problematic. And I don't want to be on opioids for this injury because that's problematic. So that was my first mar medical marijuana referral. <laughs> that was, so it's kind of weird to be an addictions guy and do one of those. So that was nice. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it can be done a lot easier than people think and, and people need to calm down and slow down and be gentle and work the problem and get out of some emotional fricking meltdown and, and just, just start doing it and we can make changes. It's, um, it's possible for sure. Is there any way people can reach you if they happen to be yeah. in, in Hawaii or elsewhere or anything sure. to promote? Well, we do online therapy. I can't provide therapy out of the state, but I can certainly provide education and consultation. And that's something that I'm excited to do for parents or whatever who need to know sort of how to approach this thing. So I definitely can provide education in that way. Um, my company is Family and Addiction Counseling, LLC. We're in Honolulu and Kapole. Um, you can reach us on the web at familyaddictioncounseling.com. Um, you can, uh, yeah, I guess you can email us at uh, glenn at familyaddictioncounseling.com is a good way to get in touch with us. You can also even call 808-494-6066. 
Um, we take most major insurances here, and that's where all my time and energy has gone into, unfortunately. But uh, I'm having a great time doing therapy, man. And, and, and it's fun being in addictions and enjoying it. And that's not something a lot of addiction providers can say. So it's been it's been really good. And if anyone wants to reach out, I'm right here for you. Sounds good. It was great having you on. Thanks for in- accepting the invitation. No, it's it's great being on, Seth, and nice catching up with you. And uh, and again, uh, just for, for those out there, keep getting the good information. Um, you can adjust these habits. They do sort of creep up on you before you know it. Watch out for those rewards. Diversify your experience. If you're if every day is at home playing video games and doing a certain thing, you can expect that that pattern is going to become fairly ingrained in you. You might want to get on that early and change. So, um, so again, I, I just uh, it's it, it can be a more manageable experience that it's it's been sold. Um, you you can. You know, get some good supportive people to maybe even help you. You might not even need to do it professionally, and um, you too can uh, make changes in your life. And uh, don't believe anyone who says things are this way forever. There's always hope, and there's always change. So that that would be it. Great. Well, I will put your information in the description and any links or phone numbers or whatever you want. Thanks for coming on, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about in the future. So Absolutely, man. I look forward to keep so, re- referring my patients who need good information to the to uh to the drug classroom. It's been great. It's a great well, resource. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. Have a good one.